to Hebrews chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of um, church history, I guess you'd call it. Uh, the best evidence that we have, since the book of Hebrews does not identify an author, the best evidence or the best guess we can make based on the evidence, and there's not a lot of it, but uh, the best guess we can make is that the book of Hebrews was an addendum or a supplemental letter that was attached to the letter that he wrote to Galatians. Now, uh, the Galatian church had been infiltrated by the Jews after Paul had left, established the church and left to go to other places at the direction of the Lord. And Jews came in from Jerusalem that changed the, the order of the church, basically. Paul had taught the people that the law, the Old Testament law was fulfilled, the law of Moses was fulfilled by the work that Jesus did through his sacrifice and resurrection. But the Jews, there were still a, a lot of Jews headquartered in Jerusalem and spread to outer regions as in this case, sent out by some of the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to implore and to influence the people that they could believe in Jesus, all right, that's fine, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul writes the letter to the Galatians and we believe attaches this special section for the Jews or the Hebrews so that he could cover all of the bases he knew this letter would be read not just by the Jews, but also by the Gentiles, probably the same ones that are uh, infiltrating or had infiltrated the churches at Galatia in the region of Galatia and imposed the law of Moses back upon them. So Paul talks to the Hebrews, assuming he is the author of the book, I believe he is. Paul talks to the Hebrews about things that they know. He talks to them about the tabernacle, the sanctuary. He talks to them about the priesthood. He talks to them about the Abrahamic covenant in, uh, in some detail. So after he makes the case in previous chapters and in the first part of chapter 8 that Jesus is our high priest, let's start reading in verse 6. He says, but now hath he, and he's talking about his Jesus, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. The more excellent ministry he's talking about is in comparison to the earthly priest, which tells us that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD, that's when the, uh, the tabernacle, the, the, the temple of the Jews was destroyed by the Romans. And uh, the, the work of the priesthood to offer sacrifices was ended. There's never been a sacrifice made since 70 AD according to the law of Moses. And, uh, and I'll show you a, a scripture that may indicate Paul had a little bit of insight that that was coming. But it says of Jesus, now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, everything you're trying to enforce now is out of the will of God. It's the old covenant that's been done away with. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In other words, if the, if the sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats on the day of atonement was sufficient to bring salvation, then God wouldn't have, have needed to send Jesus to the earth. For finding fault with them, talking about the law of Moses, finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is part of the things that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Not according to the covenant I have made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. But this, or for this, is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. 
This is going to show you why the new covenant is better and why the old covenant shouldn't be held on to. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they will be unto me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Paul is very simply saying that the new covenant is a covenant of salvation. It's a covenant of righteousness, which the law of Moses could never bring them to. Which no matter how many animal sacrifices they made or how many of the Jewish ritual sacrifices they kept, that could never happen. It could never work. It could never make man righteous. And so that's why Jesus has a, is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. Notice verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant hath he made the first. I'm sorry. A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxed, waxes old is ready to vanish away. If this was written as uh, uh, many histori- historians believe, if this was written somewhere in 64, 65, 66 A.D., then in just a matter of a few years, the temple will be destroyed and the end of the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, would take effect. Now I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. <coughs> we'll start reading in verse 13. Here's the part that was written to the church, which is primarily a Gentile church, to which we believe that the book of Hebrews was attached. Notice verse 13 of Galatians chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. He's using a natural illustration talking about a covenant. Uh, the, the closest thing to a covenant we might understand is a will. And to, to plug that with our understanding of how wills work, if we plug that in, it gives us a little bit better understanding. If though it be but a man's covenant, in, in other words, if it's just a legal document, if it be confirmed, if once it's set into effect, nobody can take away from it, nobody can add to it. Well, if that's true concerning legal documents and wills and so forth that we understand in our day and time, how much more is that true when God set his seal upon the covenant? The old covenant couldn't be added to until Jesus came back and made a new one, a new covenant with us. And now that Jesus has made that new covenant, there's not anybody on the planet that can add to it or take away from it as far as God's concerned. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto and and seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. He's simply saying that the promise was made, and you can go back in the Old Testament and find it. Every place the Bible talks about Abraham having children in the covenant that God had, it's always promised to pass down from Abraham and his seed, singular, not plural. Now, if it was made with the, the, for the Jews, then the seeds of Abraham would be everybody that's of Jewish descent. But the covenant wasn't made with the seeds, all of the children of Israel. It was made with one seed, which we're going to find out is Christ. Or actually, which he says in the last part of the verse, was Christ. So I want you to get what Paul is saying, folks. God made a covenant with Abraham and Jesus. 
God made, an Ab- made a covenant with Abraham and Jesus. Now remember when God made this covenant with him. It's in Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> it talks about the promises that God made. It talks about the, the animals that were to be split in half. The blood spilled and, and uh, the participants in this covenant had to pass through the middle of this bloody trail that was made by the splitting apart of these animals. Well, who's the one that walked between the pieces? The Bible says that was Jesus. So God made a covenant with Abraham as Jesus as his representative. And Jesus was the seed of Abraham through which the promises would come upon the Gentiles. Paul says in one place, talking about the Jews, he said, not all Israel is Israel. Now that seems to be a a confusing statement. But what he's simply saying is, Israel under the new covenant is not made up of the natural descendants of Abraham alone. That's not how you come into God's covenant relationship under the new covenant. That comes through salvation, and salvation can only come through Jesus and faith in him and the work that he's done. So when Paul is telling about the new covenant that was made with Abraham's seed, he identifies that Christ is the seed of Abraham. Let's keep reading. And this I say that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. He's simply saying that the keeping of the law of Moses can't add anything to the new covenant. Because the new covenant is not based on the law that was given to Moses. It's based on making Jesus the Lord of your life. That's why those, these quotes, these Old Testament quotes that we read in Hebrews chapter 8 are so important. Because it talks about God writing his law in our hearts. Well, that can only take place at the new birth. He's talking about living and walking on the inside of us and each person knowing God. Where before, you couldn't know God in an intimate way like that. You couldn't receive salvation because Jesus had not yet come. And so there had to be teachers particularly the rabbis that would teach the people to know God they were designed or the office of the the priesthood uh, of the rabbi was set apart with the intent of teaching people what God is like tell him about the things tell the people teach the people about the things that occurred in the days of Abraham and in the days of Moses like coming through the Red Sea by Moses parting the waters those were things that were supposed to be taught to the Jews But the teaching of the Jews or the law of Moses that the teaching comes from can't add a thing to the new covenant because it's not based on anything except the precious blood of Jesus. And the law can't add to that. And it certainly can't take away from it. So he says again in verse 18, for if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? What good is the law in other words? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's Jesus. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. In other words, he's saying here's the special part about this. As we just uh, described, the one that walked through the pieces of the animals, the split animals and the blood trail that was left between them. The one that walked through that was the agent for God, Jesus, and the agent for Abraham, Jesus. So he says, God is one, proving that God made a covenant with himself on behalf of Abraham. 
It is, the law, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ may be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us under Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, again, think about this. Paul knows what he's talking about because he was of the Jewish leadership that refused to accept Jesus. He was persecuting the church. You remember his salvation experience in Acts chapter 9 where a light shined from heaven that was brighter than the noonday sun. Paul was fallen to the ground and there was a voice that came out of the light that said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul didn't know what was going on, but he sure knew that that the one behind this was the all-powerful one. So he says, Lord, how am I persecuting you? And he says, you're persecuting my church. Persecuting the church, the people of God, is the same as persecuting Jesus. So Paul, who had the same training as the high priest, he had studied and been trained under the the greatest of the teachers of that era, Gamaliel, who's still renowned today among the Jewish community, and and his commentaries and his writings are used by the the, uh, Orthodox Jews extensively. So Paul, after having met Jesus, his eyes were open to the, new, to the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so he understands now finally that the law was supposed to be a schoolmaster. It was supposed to be a teacher. It was supposed to show that man through sin and transgression couldn't measure up to the things of God or the person of God himself. But Jesus did it for us. So that's why he's trying to impart. He's trying to teach these Jews the same thing. He's trying to let them know. The law was designed to be a schoolmaster. In other words, it wasn't the end of all things. The Jews that have come from Jerusalem to tear up the churches in Galatia, they're acting like the law is the supreme thing. They're idolizing the law. And Paul's saying the new covenant that we have in Christ goes so much further than anything that the law could ever do. The new covenant through faith in Jesus changes us, gives us a new nature, makes us righteous. So he goes on to say in verse 25, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We don't need the law to teach us anything now. We've got Jesus. For we, ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now baptism he's talking about here is not water baptism. He's saying the baptism into Christ means the new birth. He's saying as many of you as have been baptized or under Christ or accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 29. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, singular, and heirs according to the promise. Then are you Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Now remember where we started. Started in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 tells us why. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That's what he's concluding in verse 29. All the verses in between 13 and 14. Down to the end of the chapter in verse 29. He's trying to make his argument. He's making his proof. That we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
The reason we're Abraham's seed is because we are in Christ. Christ was God's agent in the cutting of the covenant with Abraham. Christ was, the, was Abraham's agent on the other side of the covenant. Both of them wrapped up in Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Folks, if you study church history, and I, I'm not an expert on church history. I enjoy reading about some of it, but after a while I get bogged down and have to move on to other things. But if you read much about church history, outside of the first generation of the church, there was great persecution against the church in the first, uh, the first century. We know about that through Paul's writings. We know about that through John and his experience and other historical documents tell us the persecution that existed at different times during that first century. But once you get to the second century, the church, maybe the mid to late second century, the church begins going through these struggles, internal and external struggles, where the church is in many cases attempted to be controlled by Rome and the popes. And in other places you've got kings and governmental authorities that are trying to bring the church under their control. You've got different things that are taking place, not many of them really positive toward God. Now, God's always had a remnant of people that loved him and would follow him and and keep the word alive. But for much of the church's history throughout the centuries, it's been marked by doctrinal differences. It's been marked by governmental persecution or adaptation, really adaptation more than... than, uh, persecution in most cases and what I mean by that is kings tried to change and alter what Christians would and would not do or he tried to control what they would or would not do now the church at Rome the popes they rebelled against this greatly they wanted to take the position and claim the position for many hundreds of years they claimed the position that they were greater than any king of any kingdom because they were God's chosen people that office of the Pope was God's chosen person to speak directly for God to the people. Well, the kings didn't like that because if they didn't have control of the church, they couldn't have control of the people. And so there's a lot of back and forth. There's the Reformation took place where Luther, Martin Luther, comes to the understanding of one scripture and it changes everything in his part of the world. He sees the scripture as a monk going through all kinds of things to buffet his body and suffer thinking that that brings him closer to God, he sees that the scripture says the just shall live by faith. Well, if the just shall live by faith, then that means they don't have to live by the rules of the monasteries or the church, uh, the organized church, or anybody else. They're to live by faith in the Lord. And folks, that, that simple understanding, that simple revelation altered the course of the church world. There were times where, as in the case of Uh, Constantine he was a Roman emperor that began great changes in the church he he got born again he was saved mostly through his mother but he did some things that greatly benefited the church the church became the state religion at one point in time but that didn't work out well for the church's sake because now you've got people joining the church for political reasons economic reasons rather than having a real relationship with God And so things continued hundreds of years further. And there comes to pass one group. And this group of the Puritans. The Puritans were also called separatists. 
because they came to understand that there was one word that was used throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament. There was one word that was used that became the foundation for nearly everything that they did and wanted to do and attempted to do. Now, the Puritans wanted to live holy lives. Their heart was right. They were trying to do most of it in the flesh, so you know what that breeds. That breeds condemnation, trying to do right but can't do right. So you come to the same place that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7 about not being able to control the flesh. But there was one simple doctrine, one simple idea and belief on the part of the Puritans that changed everything about the face of the world. And that one, that one doctrine, that one word was covenant. The Puritans believed, like nobody since the ancient Jews, that covenant meant that God had a contractual relationship with man. Well, that didn't go over well with the English church, the Anglican church. So they had two options. Option number one was to move to, to Holland, which many of them did. And then option two, several years after that, was to go to the New World. So in 1620, the pilgrims landed in, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and became a great part. Their doctrine, their lifestyle became a great part of the founding of this country when we gained our independence from England. Now, folks, again, it comes back to the thing called covenant. What they believed about covenant was that God had a contractual relationship with man. Well, you can well understand why not many people went along with that. That was radical thinking. That was radical faith. And so they were shunned by the rest of the Protestant religions. So that's what made them separate. They had to go somewhere else or they had to do something else. The question is, and the question becomes, does God have a contractual relationship with man? Turn to Luke chapter 13. Forgive me if, I'm, if I spent too much time on the history side of things, but I believe it helps us if we get a context. At least it does me. But I'm through with history, so we'll move on. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered them and said, Thou hypocrite. Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for, for all the glorious things that were done by him. Folks, I want you to see something here. Jesus heals this woman. Not out of an act of faith on her part. We don't see any evidence whatsoever that she came to Jesus or even perhaps knew that Jesus was in the synagogue on that particular day. 
I would imagine that somebody that was bowed over together like she was and couldn't lift up doesn't take on too ambitious a trip to travel from one position to another or one location to another. So Jesus sees her, sees this woman, and calls her to him and declares that she is loose from her infirmity. Now, how is it that she was loose from her infirmity? And if she was loose from her infirmity, why is she still bent over? Why can't she lift herself up? Jesus is simply saying a truth that we need to understand about God in every respect. God calls things that be not as though they were. So when Jesus says you're loose from your infirmity, and by the way, the word loose comes from the root word for redemption, to redeem or redemption. So literally, he says, woman, thou art redeemed from thine infirmity. Well, what does redeem from infirmity look like? It looks like a well body, apparently. But if it wasn't faith on her part, if he initiates it, why does he initiate it? He doesn't say, woman, God has seen your prayers. He's seen your tears. He sees all the things that you have begged him for. He didn't say anything about her. Now remember in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius, when Cornelius is praying, an angel appears and says just that. God has seen your prayers or heard your prayers and seen your, seen your tears, seen your lifestyle. And he gives him instruction to go find Paul or go find Peter rather to come and preach salvation to his household. And all that happened just the way that God told him to, the angel told him to. But here we don't see anything that Jesus singles out the woman specifically to be worthy of healing except he says there's two reasons. He gives two reasons in response to the Jewish leaders of the synagogue that were upset because he healed her. Now, folks, put yourself in, in the position of somebody that's in that church service, that synagogue, on that day. How in the world does it make sense for the leaders of the synagogue, the religious leaders, to complain about somebody being made whole? In what universe does that make sense? I mean, I could, I could have respect for them if they said, wow, I'm not even sure that I would vote for something like that to be done on the Sabbath day according to the law of Moses. But look, the woman is healed. If you're going to break the Sabbath for anything, helping somebody in that respect would be worth it, wouldn't it? But that's not the position they take. And folks, here's something we always need to keep in mind. We always need to make sure we keep our relationship with God fresh and ongoing because it's real easy to get religious and here religious attitudes were designed to thwart the will of God or condemn the Son of God for doing what he did against the law of Moses. But notice what Jesus said. He said, ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now remember the question, the question is, does God have a contract with man? Does covenant, the new covenant that Jesus is the mediator of, the better covenant established upon better promises, even the covenant that we realize and understand that the blessing of Abraham is part of it. Now the blessing of Abraham isn't the entirety of the new covenant because the new covenant goes beyond the physical and, and material promises that God made to Abraham 
physical promises as well and extend to the spiritual benefits of the new birth and being made righteous. And that's what seems to me it would be the thing that would make it a better covenant. It's got all that the old covenant had plus righteousness, which could not be had before Jesus came and died on the cross. So here's Jesus operating according to his own testimony. He said, I only do the things that please my father. He said in another place, I only do what I see my father do. He said, the works are not of me, but they're of my father. Now, what does that mean? That means he's giving God credit for every good thing that he did because the power to do the good things, the miracles and the healings came from from the anointing of the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. So he recognizes and is very open about it. He doesn't try to hide the fact or try to claim some of the credit or the power for himself. He says, this is God in me that's doing these things. It's not me. I'm just doing them at the will of the Father. So Jesus... The Son of Man on the earth, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever we say about Jesus in this case, he's the same way today. And Jesus crediting his Father God for his willingness to heal as well as the power to make it so, God said of himself, I am God, I change not. So you've got two proofs that whatever the attitude is, that Jesus tells us whatever God's will, God's uh, position, and God's attitude would be toward this woman who's not a respecter of persons, meaning if it's God's attitude for her, it has to be God's attitude for you and me too. He can't pick and choose for one person to have blessings and other other people not to have blessings unless he's a respecter of persons. So what does Jesus show us about the will of God? Here's the Son of God on the earth saying that she ought to be well, saying that the sick ought to be healed. Now, one of the reasons they ought to be healed, he identifies as that she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a recipient or she's in line to be a recipient of the blessings of Abraham. And since Jesus is identifying that with deliverance and healing, then the blessing of Abraham has to include deliverance and healing. And then the second reason he gives is because Satan is bound her these, eight, uh, what is it, 18 years? Satan is bound her for these 18 years. So God's position toward mankind, as described and revealed in this situation with the woman that was bent over, is that God believes, God says, that the sick should be healed. Now remember what we talked about earlier, what we just read from Hebrews and Galatians chapter 3. If it's a legal contract, even if it's a man's contract, it can't be changed. So when the Puritans started talking about contractual rights because of this covenant thing, we've got Bible evidence to tell us whether or not that was true. And Jesus says unequivocally, she ought to be healed. She's a daughter of Abraham, so she ought to be healed. Well, again, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you've been born again, then God takes the same attitude towards you in sickness as he took toward this woman in Luke chapter 13. You're Abraham's seed. 
if Jesus lives in your heart, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've accepted what God did for you through Jesus' sacrifice and substitutionary work, then even more so, because the better covenant established upon better promises, even more so as she was thought by Jesus to ought to have been healed. So is the same thing true for you and me. So is the same thing true for you and me. I was listening to a testimony the other day. One of the most marvelous testimonies that I think I've ever heard. It was a testimony given by R.W. Shambach, who's since gone on to be with the Lord. But as a young man, Brother Shambach worked with A.A. Allen. He was one of the healing revival evangelists, and God used him in a great way. Now, if you Google or search the Internet for A.A. Allen, you're going to find a lot of bad stuff said about him. And there were things about his flesh that he never did conquer. And as a result, lived a short life here on the earth. But you can't deny the power of God that flowed through it. God certainly didn't have a perfect man or a perfect vessel to use in Brother Allen. But you can't deny the power that worked through it. Brother Shambach was asked by uh, a guy that picked him up at the airport. It was taking him somewhere for his, uh, to the church meeting that he was going to have or whatever, wherever it was. He asked Brother Shambach, he said, what's the greatest miracle you've ever seen? Brother Shambach said, without hesitation, I told him about a little boy in Alabama. Here's a little child that was born with 26 different conditions or diseases. He had deformities of his internal organs. His legs had no feet at the end. They were just clubs. He was blind. He was deaf. He was dumb. And some things that, I, that he mentioned that I can't even pronounce that was wrong with the boy. They told the mother that the boy would not live past about a year or 18 months. But he did. He lived up until the time that he was about six years old at, this, uh, at the time that this meeting took place. Brother Allen would hold week-long meetings at certain places. Brother Shambach would teach in the morning on faith. They would give out prayer cards. Now, the way it works with many of these healing evangelists, and, and Brother Allen was one of them, is that you would have to be in a service, at least three services, before you could get a prayer card to have Brother Allen pray for you and minister to you. And the reason behind this is because they were trying, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. They're trying to build faith in the hearts of the people. And so you, the first service you go to, you get a certain color card. Second service you go to, you trade that for a different color card. Third service you went to, then you traded that for the prayer card that had a number on it that Brother Allen could call or bring them up in groups or however that worked. Well, Brother Allen would usually pray for people in the evening services. You could well understand that unless God moved in a specific way or a, a, a different way than normal, there would be nobody that had hands laid on them in the first three nights. It's going to take that long for people to be in services and for their um, faith to rise. So the end of the week is coming, and this woman came to Brother Shambach and said, I'm out of money. 
We've had to travel here from such a distance. We've been staying at a hotel, but now I'm down to my last 20 bucks. And it was the last night of the crusade. And so Brother Shambach had been talking to her. He was acquainted with the little boy and at least some of the conditions that he had. And so he said, well, I tell you what, ma'am, if Brother Brother Allen doesn't pray for the sick tonight, I'll personally take you back to the, the green room, what we would know of as the green room, I guess, and make sure he lays hands on you. So the evening service comes. Brother Allen steps out on the platform. He said, folks, I know we've already received an offering, but he said, the Holy Ghost is prompting me to do something different. And he said this. He said, I'm not asking every one of you to give. But he said, I am asking that if you need something from God, I want you to come give him something you can't afford. Well, right away, a lot of people would think you're just trying to milk the crowd for money. And a lot of criticism went out when things like that would take place. Some of it perhaps justified, but not all of it. Brother Shambach was sitting on the platform, and he said, I saw in the back of the auditorium this woman jump out in the middle of the aisle and come running down. She was the first one there. She put what she had in the bucket. Brother Shambach said, I jumped down off the platform, ran down to where the bucket was, and looked, and there's a $20 bill. He realized this woman gave everything she had. So after the offering was taken, Brother Shambach goes to preaching, just doing his own thing following the leading of the Holy Ghost. And then all of a sudden he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And this was a pretty common way that the Lord would use him. He said, I see a a white building. I can't tell what the building is, but I see a white building. Then he said, wait a minute, I'm going inside the building now. And it was as he was seeing these things in the spirit and he was describing to the crowd as they happened. He said, oh, I know what this is. This is a hospital. He said, I'm going to the uh, the maternity ward. And he said, I see a little baby. This little baby is blind, deaf, and dumb. It doesn't have feet on the end of his legs. Well, by now, the people in the auditorium who don't know anything else that's going on, they're just in shock. Everybody's quiet as a church mouse. You could hear a pin drop in the room as he continues to describe certain things. And he says, I see that this baby has 12, no, 14, no, 21, no, 26 different conditions. Well, she knows it's her. He said, who are you? She jumps out in the aisle carrying this little boy. She makes her way out to where Brother Allen is. And Brother Allen takes the child in his arms and walks from one end of the platform to the other end of the platform. And he tells the people, asks the people to stretch their arms out toward this child. He began to weep. The compassion of God came upon him. And while he wept, he hadn't prayed for the child. He hasn't done anything to declare the child's victory or healing or anything like that. He's just weeping over the child. And by the time he got to the other end of the platform, Brother Shambach said, I'm walking with him step by step. 
the, one, the mom stayed at the other end of the platform and didn't walk with them. But he said, I want to see what's going on. Brother Allen told the people to close their eyes and stretch forth their hands toward this little boy, not to pray for his healing, but while he was walking with him. Brother Shambach said, not me. I'm not closing my eyes for one second in this. Brother Shambach said, it was as if God took silly putty. You remember that? You get into the carpet and couldn't get it out. He said it was as, as if God was using silly putty and he formed feet on the end of those legs. He said, I looked in the little boy's face and he said, you couldn't see any eye color whatsoever. It was just white because of the milkiness. That was the result of him being blind or the blindness that he had. He said, but all of a sudden that milkiness started clearing up. He said, within just a matter of a few seconds, this little boy had great, big, bright blue eyes. He said he lifted up his head. The child lifted up his head and perked up at the sound. You could tell he was hearing things for the first time in his life. By the time he got to the other end of the platform, God had healed this child of all 26 of these diseases. Well, Brother Allen recognized what was going on along with Brother Shambach. And he said, he held this child up and he said to the people, look what God's done. Wasn't anything anybody could deny. He put this child on the platform and said, go run over there to your mother. The little boy had never seen his mother. He didn't know who his mother was until she said his name. She said, I'm here, Johnny, or whatever his name was. Like a shot, this little boy ran across the platform and jumped in his mother's arms. Brother Shambach said, the place came unglued. It was like somebody had blown the lid off the top of that building. He said, the power of God flowed through that place. He said, every person in that place that was sick was healed. From a cold or a sore throat, all the way to people on stretchers, people that were lame, people that had been given up by medical science to die. Every person in that building was healed that night. And he said this. He said, I've never forgotten that. It's the most outstanding miracle I've ever seen or been a part of in any way whatsoever. And he said, several years later, I realized that God had given me a preview of the healing power of God and the glory of God that would be seen in the last days before Jesus comes back. Well, he died. He didn't live to see it happen. But he's one of many, many, many credible ministers of God that have prophesied things yet to come. Those God hadn't lost one bit of his power. He hadn't lost one bit of his willingness to use his power. He doesn't love that little boy any more than he loves you and me. Jesus didn't have respect for this woman any more than he has respect for you and me when we need healing. God is still God and always will be. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your mercy, your kindness unto us. 
We thank you, Father, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. We're not going to be healed someday. We are healed now. Bodies, we command you to conform to the word. We believe God's word is true. So we call you healed. Body, we call you well. Sickness, we call you gone. And according to the word of God, we declare that we are the healed of God. Now let's lift our hands toward heaven and thank God for doing whatever needs to be done for you. We love you, Father. We magnify your name. We thank you that your hand is not slack. You've lost no power to heal the sick. But instead, you've ensured it. You've kept your promise. Jesus, we worship you for taking hold of sickness and disease and bearing it for us. Father, we worship you. We magnify the name of Jesus, our healer. Not just our Savior, but our healer. We thank you, Father, for changing things that need to be changed in our bodies. For restoring our health and healing our wounds. We thank you, Father, that the blessing of Abraham is ours. And that blessing includes divine healing and health. We bless you, Father. We magnify your name. Now receive your healing. In Jesus' name. Receive your healing. By the blood of Jesus. Receive your healing. Once and for all. Receive your healing. In the name of Jesus. Is it done? By faith it's done. By faith it's an accomplished work. Therefore from this point forward, assuming you prayed for the first time for your healing tonight, we need to call ourselves well. No matter what we see in our bodies, no matter what we feel. According to God's word, healing is ours. Amen. Amen. I'm glad we serve a healing God, aren't you? There's nothing too hard for him. And there's nothing he won't do for us when we reach out in faith, as we have done tonight. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his healing mercy endures forever. Amen. Thanks for being here.